God, we gather before you as your humble children, as your humble servants, purchased out of the guilt and shame of our sin into newness of life, into redemption, into wholeness and holiness, into peace with you. We rejoice in your name and we gather before you today saying you and you alone are holy and where we find fault with you, it falls on us. That by our nature we are children of wrath, deserving of your punishment, but that by your love you desired, as your word says, not only to be just, but to be the justifier. And that all of us, though deserving and worthy of punishment, can have peace. Knowing that the punishment we deserve was placed on your son. We thank you for the faith that you give us in you. To rest in you, to trust in you, to have hope in you. Not that things will be perfect this side of heaven, but that you are actively cherishing us and at work within us to shape us to look like you. As we gather around your word today, Holy Spirit, I ask that you pour forth in abundance, giving us hearts of discernment as we read your word, that we would be comforted by you and challenged by you, not only to see where we fall short, but that with joy and confidence we can walk according to your leadership to look like Jesus. Convict us where we fall short and strengthen us in celebration and remembrance of the Son. Guide me as I preach your word. May I preach with purity and truth what is in this text, not what I put into it, because that's not my place, but rather what it is you have said to a specific people at a specific time with truth that is applicable into infinity. There is no expiration date on your word, but rather infinite truth that should comfort us and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you would, your Bibles or your phones, whatever it is you were using for Scripture today, if you would turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Let's see here. I need to get there too. From Isaiah. The book of Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be reading verse 15 today. Um, but I want to start in verse 10. Having obviously gone through all the theology of redemption as we have been given, um, what it means to be called out of sin and called into unity with God, what it means to be called out of sin and to be restored into newness of life, and what it looks like to live our lives in holiness. God, uh, Paul then uh, lines up his final parting thoughts in the book of Ephesians for the, the per preservation and perseverance of saints. Saying, finally, my brethren, starting in verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. 
Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which uh, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take this helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I might open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Um, Paul has clearly defined the terms here, that as a Christian you have not only been redeemed into newness of life in the sense of a coming expectation of heaven, but you have been redeemed into a newness of life in the sense that you have been transformed to walk therefore, to walk continually post-conversion in Christ, leaning on Christ, leaning on the Lord and the power of His might in an active battle. He's defined the enemy clearly as Satan and all the powers that rebel against God. Every active force seeking to see God fail, seeking to overthrow Him, seeking and it's in its pride and rebellion to make sin palatable to see the destruction of the church. Meanwhile, the Christian has been appropriately and fully equipped with every necessary uh, thing for longevity in the faith, the whole armor of God, every aspect of what we need in fighting the good fight, in lasting. Paul associates the tools of the faith with the armor of God. Again, being imprisoned having his one view for the day being other prisoners or Roman soldiers, most exclusively Roman soldiers, he would have looked at their armament, their preparedness for battle, and he would have seen parallels to the equippedness that the saints should have in their walk of faith. The girdle of truth is first, the breastplate of righteousness, second, the shoes of the gospel of peace, third, fourth, the shield of faith, fifth, the helmet of salvation, and sixth, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've covered the first two of these, uh, first of which is being truth. The problem that we have as humans, specifically, um, we touched lightly on in the modern world, this uh, subjective nature of truth that we have adopted, the fact that reality for me might not be reality for someone else, the fact that the way the, that life works well for me not might necessarily be truth for another person is not only completely false, but it's entirely inappropriate for the Christian. We define that a little bit harder by saying, even if we understand what is truth, we need to understand the nature of truth as revealed in God. That it is not the worst thing can be a Christian that is so wishy-washy in standing up for faith as revealed in their own heart that they don't even have real faith. 
but that even for those of us that are sold and solid on the truth and the faith that we have in the gospel and the faith we have in God and his standard and his holiness, it is not good enough as Christians to be satisfied, well, I just know that that's the right way or that's the right thing. It's truth just because it says it is. It's truth just because it is. No, that's not good enough. Rather, we should be growing in our understanding of God, growing in our understanding of His nature, growing in our understanding of our nature and the relationship between us and God. The truth that we stand up for and that we're willing to die on isn't just because we grew up that way or it feels right for us, but because it is truth. Because it is as it is revealed in God. It defines every aspect of our lives and ultimately rests in God. If we reject the truth as revealed by God and in Him, then we reject life. And then secondly, the second uh, piece of our armor was righteousness. We looked at this last week. Defined not only by our standing before God, but also establishes our continued existence. Just as the breastplate of a soldier was there to protect his vital organs, to protect that which could mortally wound him and maim him and knock him out of commission against the attacks of the enemy, so does righteousness plate itself against our spiritual health, against our spiritual vitals, that righteousness, right standing in amongst the holiness of God, understanding that which is acceptable and pure in God's sight and that which is sin and against Him is essential for the Christian. Not only do we have to comprehend righteousness as standing before God in His holiness because of the righteousness of Christ imputed upon us, happens at conversion, that when God looks at us, He doesn't see our acts of unrighteousness, but He sees the acts of righteousness of Christ. That's what it means to be saved. With it comes the calling to continually suit up with righteousness in pursuit of a life that mimics Christ, that lives according to the will of God. Just as we saw in chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand that which is righteous and pursue Him. To which we get to the gospel. He says, Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The third tool that he chooses to point at in the soldier's arsenal are his shoes. Again, we have to think this is all framed within the context of the defense against the attacks of Satan. Um, I, I say that because it's going to be really important that we understand the gospel in the nature of this conversation has more to do with us persevering than necessarily us attacking. Although it absolutely is. That's not to say that's not truth. It's just not where we're at in Paul's theology at the moment. When he discusses the shoes of the soldier, he's discussing the shoes of the soldier in light of an enemy attacking that soldier and the equippedness that comes with those tools. We have to understand in the context of battle the importance of a soldier being thoroughly equipped with footwear, providing both security and comfort. He needed to be prepared to cross any terrain swiftly and securely. He might need to retreat to safe ground or dodge the attack of an enemy threat without worrying about stumbling. It was also necessary for the soldier to pursue the enemy at all costs. 
agility and preparedness aiding in the ability to take up arms. So yes, the gospel and the shoes of our armor are necessary in our attacks against the devil, but it is also crucial in our defense of the devil. Roman soldiers, their sandals in battle would have had nails driven through the top of them so that they had essentially spikes under their shoes so that they could grip, so that they could move, so that they wouldn't slip, so that they wouldn't fall. We looked at the girdle and the nature of the girdle and how obviously that would be the first thing you would put on to wrap up and tie anything so that a shirt tail or a robe or whatever couldn't get grabbed by an enemy so that you didn't have some dangling appendage that could be grabbed and pulled and brought you, brought you to your knees and brought you into the submission of the enemy. How important it was to tie up every restriction. Well, in the same way, why would we ever think it necessary for a soldier to go into battle barefoot? How clumsy that would be. I can tell you just about every person I've ever known that's one of those hyper-romanticists of tac tactical life that, that stock up on ammo, stock up on rations, stock up on whatever for the threat that the day the bomb falls. There are also people that you constantly see buying military-grade boots there's a reason why the technology is there. There's a reason why it's so important that feet be equipped for what they need to be equipped for. I think of World War I and all the stories of trench foot and how horrifying it is at the thought that, that we weren't prepared. We weren't ready for what battle looked like in wet, soggy, muddy puddles and days and days of your feet soaked in wet dirt. And how men had died, if not at least lost their legs, due to disease and infestation crawling in. Destroying them from the feet up. How essential it is that as you walk and march into battle, as you stand before the enemy, that you are purely and firmly and sure-footedly standing there ready to dodge if you need to dodge, ready to retreat if you need to retreat. Not retreat in the sense of we're losing any battle, but retreat in the sense of run to the safety of, for instance, the gospel. When it's time to run to the safety of the gospel. To flee the devil, as we are taught in Scripture. How when we get knocked back, we're not getting knocked back onto terrain that hurts and cuts and destroys our footing. But to be prepared, to be prepared to stand fast and stand in preparation and in expectation of an enemy attack. Where shoes serve a practical purpose in protecting the feet of the soldier, Paul points to a more helpful tool, and that is the gospel of peace. The very nature of the gospel is shared by Paul already in this book is the peace that it brings through Christ. What is the gospel? Again, we've talked about truth and we've talked about righteousness. Well, righteousness is defined by truth. Truth is defined in Christ, in the word of God. Truth is in God, shared to us. If it is not something that aligns with God, it is not true. He is a God of order. He is a God of rule and of justice. What he says is truth, is righteous. 
in the same way he defines the gospel. So when I say, what is the gospel? If I were to say, I doubt my salvation, would someone come up here on this stage in front of everyone else and share with me the gospel? With what confidence could you do so? We have to come to terms with these things. We have to define these things because this is the arsenal that we are given not only in pursuit of the kingdom, not only in in leading the kingdom in its victory, but also in our own defense. If we can't get these right, it's not just a matter of... If you can't define the gospel, it's not just that you are useless in the pursuit of the kingdom of God. You are worse than useless. You are a liability. We have to define the gospel. Well, Ephesians 2, verse 14 through 18 says, For he himself is our peace. He, Christ, himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, Jew and Gentile, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we have both access to the Father by one Spirit. The very message of the gospel is the Son has been made our peace. Not just between believers of different backgrounds, whether Jew, Gentile, or in a modern-day practical uh, uh, application, black and white, or white and Hispanic, or Hispanic and Chinese, or you know whatever. It's not that he's just become our peace amongst people. He's not just attempting to achieve peace within world government. No, the peace has to start in him, rest in him, and remain in him. He is the peace. He doesn't write you a peace deal that you then keep up. He is the peace deal. And not only is he a peace deal between believers of different backgrounds, but he is more importantly the the peace deal between us and God. The gospel is that there was hostility, there was animosity, there was an enemy relationship between God and us because of our sin. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ serves as the atoning sacrifice to achieve restoration, to achieve peace, to achieve holiness, and to achieve purity between us and God, to purchase us into redemption. The gospel. Prior to salvation, we were by our very nature enemies of God, only reconciled by the message of the gospel. Colossians 1, 21-23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, understand it's our fault. The hostility that we have as unbelievers against God is not God's fault. When we hate God, when we hate the church, it is not God's fault. It's our fault. We weren't enemies with God because God likes to have enemies to squash. We weren't enemies with God because God's a bully. No, we were enemies with God because we, in our minds, had evil desires, evil behavior, and chose to rebel against a holy God. 
because He is holy and we are not. It has nothing to do with God being a bad guy. We were the bad guy. But now, verse 22, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free of accusation. The gospel. That's the gospel. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. If someone asks you, share your testimony and you don't think you can do it, just open to Colossians chapter 1 and read them verses 21 and 22. That's everyone's, if you're Christian, that is your testimony right there. It's not that you were once a drug dealer, but now you're not. It's not that you were once cheated on your spouse left and right, and now you don't. No, it's not that. It's that you were an enemy of God because of your own fault, but that because of the death of because and through the physical death of Christ, He has not only redeemed us and reconciled us, but He presents us as holy, without blemish, and free of accusation. There is nothing to accuse you. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, again, that sure, firm footing in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Our status as enemies alienated us from the presence of God, bringing us rightfully under his judgment. However, reconciliation came through the physical death of Christ, his suffering for our sake, that we might be made without blemish and free, of accu- free from accusation. It's the message that establishes us as friends of God, but also seals us as enemies of Satan. You cannot serve two masters. You can't be one of God's children and also a friend of the world. It's all over Scripture. There's no barrier to the spread of the gospel. It is a message that is freely available should there be one to bring it to the hearer. It's what establishes us as firm and secure in the face of danger because it proclaims our safety at the hands of a loving and secure God with whom we have no more uh, amnesty. We have no more um, hostility with him. We have no more animosity towards him. I should say we have amnesty. Romans ten, fourteen through 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Again, sure footing in the gospel. There is no neutral ground in the battle between heaven and hell. There's no neutral territory. You don't get to pick just neither or pick one side while at the same time hanging out with the enemy team once in a while. No. Pick your colors, put them on, and die with them on. It's essential to the salvation of others. Again, how 
It's a logical spiral here in Romans 10. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can an unbeliever call on God for salvation? How can an unbeliever call on God for redemption if they don't believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they haven't heard of him? And how can they hear if someone isn't preaching to them? And how can someone preach to them unless they are sent? Does that sit heavy with us at all? Does it sit heavy with you that there are people dying today and going to hell that have never heard of Christ? That have no clue what it's like to lay on a deathbed and call out to God for mercy? And how will they if they, have no, if they haven't heard of him? And how will they hear of him unless somebody tells them? And how will anyone tell them if they're not sent? And then he calls out to Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. How gorgeous it is to behold the gospel taken out of a church building by a church member and brought to someone who needs to hear it and sharing the message of redemption. You love somebody, tell them that they are loved. Otherwise, you do not love them. It's a direct advance against Satan and the powers of darkness, standing firm in the message of the gospel of peace and fighting for the glory of God. Isaiah 52, 7 continues stating that these, the, uh, when it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, Isaiah 52 says, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. The terms are defined The most gorgeous thing in the world is someone that says there is hostility, but peace has been achieved. The most beautiful you will ever look is telling an unbeliever, return to Christ. Turn to him. Repent of your, let go of your sin and turn to him. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, says in a sermon, um, I actually have it saved to my, uh, my computer, it's a beautiful sermon, it's one in which uh, a wom- the woman with an illness uh, has been healed by Christ and she stands up before all the people and proclaims that she has been healed and she can't help but proclaim to everyone that Christ has healed him. And in this, he talks about the different ways in which we are Christians are held to a standard where we have to share the gospel. It is in our nature that you have to share the gospel. You cannot remain silent. And he goes through the different aspects of our lives in which we are required to do so, whether it be for ourselves, whether it be for our church, whether it be for the sake of God, whether it be for others. And within the context of sharing your faith with unbelievers, in the context of strapping the shoes of the gospel to your feet in pursuit of the coming kingdom, he says, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself, be sure of that. Eighteen eighty eight he preached that. 
Have you no, do you have a loved one in your family that does not, you aren't confident they're saved? If you do not preach the gospel, all that says that there, there's something you should be worried about in your own salvation. Have you no wish for people to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Be certain of that. Don't rest tonight if there's not something in you that is not only sure-footed in your defense in the gospel, but sure-footed in you are strapping those on to storm the gates of hell with the gospel. Because how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? And how can those feet go if they are not strapped with the shoes of the gospel of peace? We stand securely, having done all to stand, as we have seen in our attack and in our wrestling and our fighting against the wiles of the devil. In the face of the enemy's attack, we've done all to stand because things ultimately fall into submission under Christ's feet. We've seen in Ephesians already that we've been securely guaranteed an inheritance in heaven and peace with God because of what Christ has done. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, I keep jumping back to this, but these themes are spread throughout this book. In Him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And you also, talking to the Ephesians, talking within the realm of the Gentiles, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. We stand boldly in the face of an attack because we stand securely on the message of the gospel that is flat out there. Righteousness and our love, uh, the, the righteousness bestowed on us in Christ and the righteousness to which we are called to and which we are constantly focused on, that we take out of the, of the chest and we say, I'm strapping this to my torso in defense. I will pursue righteousness, not unrighteousness. That might shield our torso. Uh, the truth girdles all loose things away so that we can be equipped and ready to put on the whole armor of God. The shoes of the gospel are what make you march into battle, what stands you firm in the battle, and what guides you. If we really believe that we are cherished by God, Scripture says we are God's possession to the praise of His glory. That God not only cherishes us as His possession, but that we, and by our nature, are for the praise of His glory. It's, you are not God's possession in the sense of a screwdriver that he's had for 30 years that he inherited from his father that cost him nothing. No, you are a possession that he places his reputation on. You are a possession that when God, if God's going to grab one thing when the house burns down, it's going to be you. That's the gospel. Romans 8 31 through 39, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, 
or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or insert whatever the threat might be? Will it separate you from the love of Christ? Well, what does the gospel say? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The outlook of a believer where he looks at his life and identifies with the Psalter saying, I am just a sheep waiting for someone to kill me. That is the life that God has lined up for me. Regardless, what is the outcome? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what it looks like to be sure-footed. That is what it looks like to strap the gospel of peace to your feet, to go stand in the evil day, to go stand against the wiles of the devil, to go stand against whatever power might be attacking you, and to even succumb physical death because of your testimony in Christ. You are a conqueror. It's purely because of the love of Christ. We live in confidence because we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Christians live with boldness in the gospel because there's no enemy that can surpass the power of Christ's love as revealed in His death, burial, and resurrection. The totality of created order, the most holy being to the most evil power, all fall short of being able to condemn the believer. It does not matter if it is one of the most saintly men to live on this earth or whether it is Satan himself. No one can bring any charge against you that will condemn you if you rest in the gospel. Quoting Psalm 44, the Apostle Paul points to the frequent calls of persecution, even the point of death as a success for a Christian soldier. God purposes martyrdom. But if you stand there and you say, yes, I believe and take a bullet for it, that is conquering. With the sh- that is the sure-footedness of the gospel. That is strapping your feet with the gospel. Is looking at death and saying, I will die with his praise on my lips. Paul's mind was solely on the gospel. If God would go as far as to condemn the son, then surely we can fight for steadfastness. He says that right there. If God is for us, who can be against us? We quote that all the time. If God is for us, who can be against us? And rightfully so. But what does it say after that? What does it mean for God to be for us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all. How will he also not along with him graciously give us all things? As we look in this, I want us to look at a couple things. One, we have redemption through the gospel. You got it, you got to define those terms. Everybody, Colossians 1, 21 and 22. If you're going to memorize something this week, well, first and foremost, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that's really easy to memorize. I could read that five times and it's you probably memorized it. But if you're going to memorize something else this week, take Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22, and understand that. Memorize it. 
Read it every day this week. Because if someone asks you, what is the gospel? What do you live for? That is what you live for. You don't have to be creative with your testimony. You don't have to be creative with the gospel as it relates to you. God has given you his gospel. He defines it. He owns it. He accomplished it. You are a gracious recipient. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. Apply it to your life. Make it personal. Show how it reflects itself in your personal experiences. Sure, fine, but at least start with that. Memorize that. Tell your kids that. Don't let your kids go a day without hearing what the nature of the gospel is. You were enemies of God, but that by the physical death of the Son, you've been made blameless and holy, restored unto Him. We have redemption through the gospel. It's the foundation of our faith. It makes sense that it would be our sure footing against enemy attack. Just several chapters earlier in Ephesians, he talks about how we as believers are being built up into the holy temple of God in which his Holy Spirit resides. And what does he say? We're built upon the apostles and the prophets, but the cornerstone of which is Christ, because it is the gospel that determines whether the building falls or not. When the winds blow, it's the gospel that keeps it up. When the waves crash, it's the gospel. In a portion focused primarily on defense against the wiles of the devil, we should not neglect Paul's intent that the gospel is a tool for the preservation of the saints, not just a pursuit of kingdom growth. We tend to not place much thought on the gospel past our initial conversions. When I tell you what is the gospel, do you think it is the thing that saved me when I was six and that's as far as you go with it? We tend to button up the gospel as if it is what gets people saved and then we move on. As if the gospel is useful for when someone leads you to Christ and then when you get the opportunity once in a while to lead another one to Christ. That's when the gospel comes in handy. Otherwise, it's a little boring. If I got up here every single Sunday for the rest of my ministry and only shared the gospel, would you be bored? Because if so, that's your fault. Because what do you think we're going to do when we get to heaven? If not worship that. If not worship the nature of the Messiah. As Lord, as Redeemer. If if you woke up every single morning and read the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in its entirety every day for the rest of your life, would you grow bored with it? If so, that's your fault. That's not the fault of Scripture. That's not the fault of God. That's not the fault of me. That's your fault. Because we've trained ourselves into thinking that the purpose of everything is to achieve goals, whether it's to achieve wealth, whether it's to achieve business growth, whether it's to achieve winning this game or that game or achieving this, that, or the other. And so we've turned the gospel into purely a tool to achieve something as opposed to the purpose and meaning of life. The glory of the, of the Messiah, the glory of Christ. We should absolutely grow out of the milk of our spiritual youth. 
You hear a lot of people frequently talking, because it's a very creative illustration. And I, I've seen more than one pastor do it. The one that I remember first doing it is Francis Chan speaking out of Hebrews on how uh, I believe the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews, was, um, was criticizing the church for not outgrowing the milk of their spiritual infancy. And he uses a baby bottle filled with milk and drinks out of it. And he asks the congregation how weird that looks, that you think it's very odd to see a grown man drink out of a baby bottle and to drink milk, but that that is what we as believers choose to do with our entire lives is just sit around and wait for God to pop a boob in our mouths. Sorry if that was a little crass. But it should look weird. It should look disgustingly weird for us to be okay with infantile faith. But that does not mean you move on from the gospel. An infant might wrestle their whole lives with the basic nature of needing to be freed from sin. A heretic moves on from the gospel. So what does a Christian do? We don't outgrow the foundations of the truth of the gospel, rather we grow into them. Instead of ignoring the gospel as common or elementary, the true Christian grows increasingly knowledgeable about the gospel message, leaning on it constantly for security and peace. When I say that, I mean as an infant, you might be given the shoes of the gospel. As an infant believer, you might be given the shoes of the gospel and spend your entire infancy trying to figure out what they're for, how to put them on their feet, uh, uh, you know, what even is it? But then you spend the rest of your life learning how to use them. You can have been a Christian for 75 years and learn something new about what it means to use the gospel in defense against Satan. Because again, in this passage, Paul isn't necessarily talking about, hey, put the gospel on your feet to go share the gospel. He's saying, no, hey, put the gospel on your feet so that when the devil attacks, you're ready. That's different. That's way different. If we aren't constantly enamored by, if we're not constantly desperately in love with the gospel, bare bones gospel, when Satan decides to swing, you're getting knocked on your rear end 10 out of 10 times. This has nothing to do with sharing it. of which, though, that is also a responsibility of ours. Not only does God carry our defense through the power of the gospel, He also empowers us to carry this message out into the world. It is both a defense of and an offensive weapon. We'll look into that a little bit later when it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But the gospel is absolutely a tool for Satan's downfall. As we stand secure and safe in the testimony of the gospel, we are called to bring others with us, God breaking Satan's hold on those that come to faith through our witness. The gospel for the believer is what makes Satan's attacks fall flat because you are steadfast, you are firm-footed, you're not going anywhere because of the power of God in redeeming you through the gospel. But it is also the one thing that is the downfall of Satan's kingdom. 
We've got to take that message out there. Again, as Spurgeon said, have you no concern for those who are not saved? If so, you are not saved. Be sure of that. So again, I say, what's the gospel? Be ready. Be ready. If you spend your... Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But if you spend your entire life and never share the gospel with somebody, don't expect heaven. Because that doesn't look like faith. That doesn't look like a redeemed life. All heads bowed, all eyes closed. God, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the gospel which unites us in you. The gospel which has achieved peace between us, fallen man, and you, our holy creator, from whom and against whom we have rebelled. In Christ, we celebrate your name as holy. And we shout your praise. We magnify you. We make much of your gospel because your gospel is what we should strap to our feet. Make us beautiful as those that take the message of redemption and salvation out into the world and may we stand so securely and so firmly in our knowledge and love and faith in your gospel that no matter what may come, it holds no chance because we are more than conquerors in you. Help us love you and help us serve you. Help make us holy and help build your church. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.